listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Cool. Uh, so I got 39 degrees on my my weather thing on my computer here. That's probably uh, cool for you, Curtis. I have uh, I have 37 on the outdoor thermometer, and then when I used my digital meat thermometer in the room I'm sitting in right now, it is 43 because we do not have air conditioning. <laughs> So, so I'm very so, hot and very sweaty in this room right now. It's uh, yeah, it's I can tell you're a little red. Fucking, oh, it's co- yeah. And I've been outside in the heat doing work all day too. So it's like it was a hot day today. Holy no smokes. kidding. So there's there's temperature records being broken uh, right now. So but I think this has got to be a record for us. Remember when we were at the University of Saskatchewan? with Dr. Ryan Brook on the pig podcast and we were in his little tiny office in the university in the summertime oh, it, and it was sweltering that. hot in there. This is, this is hotter than that. I think so. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Uh, so you're the, the, the heat dome they're calling it. It's not over you yet. Is it Marco? 36 here. And, um, like you, I have the same feel about this too hot <laughs> yeah 36 i'm i'm usually saying it's too hot when it hits about um maybe 12 to 15 degrees in the spring i'm like that's good if it stopped there so this is this is too much for me so <laughs> um you know when i was when i was i was reading some of your papers um just kind of like you know prepping over the last few days kind of for this podcast um I'll, you'll have to explain this so on one of your papers, the contact information said people could find you at the Department of Animal and Human Biology at the University of Rome, but your email address was for the University of Calgary. <laughs> so how does that work? You got like two paychecks going here? That's a good question. I think it was a courtesy because uh, the results were published a bit later, but. Uh, when I was working on that paper, I might have been at the University of Rome, and therefore, the credits go to the proper institution too. But then I was not there anymore physically. So if people needed to reach me, there, you know, there was the email. University. They, of they needed the most. So I'm probably the only person that's ever pointed that out. Question that. Mm-hmm. How how come? <laughs> so, so yeah, I even I even read the the footnotes. So, so there you go. So they're, they're worth putting there. So, um, that's pretty cool. So, so were you ever like actually like working in the university of Rome? Like- that's a good, yes. So to make a long story short, I was uh, born in Rome and, uh, I was at the university, uh, at the university of Rome and also at the university of, uh, Siena. So two uh, major universities of Italy. And then I did my doctoral studies, my PhD in Canada. And uh, then I did my postdoc uh, in Italy. It was interesting because uh, the postdoc was paid by Canada. So it was an NSERC funded postdoc. And then I missed Canada. I missed Canada and I was hired as an assistant professor in Canada. And since uh, 2005, I work in academia in Canada. Oh, cool. So you're, you're in Rome, and then you went, I want to move back to Calgary. 
where one day it could be minus 47 and then the next day it could be plus 15 in January, I've seen that. right? You were like, I've seen I miss that. that. <laughs> I've seen that. No, yeah. seriously, well, uh, Calgary is um, a wonderful place to be. Uh, the university is not bad and the mountains, the mountains close to Calgary, they're magnificent. It's the best place to work and enjoy life that I can think of. Well, see, that's kind of funny because we know lots of people from Calgary and it's sort of like they talk about Calgary and the Rocky Mountains. And uh, if you have, if you're buying a home, there's in the real estate market in Calgary, if you have a view of the Rocky Mountains anywhere from your home, it adds like a couple hundred thousand dollars to the price of the house. So, but it's funny when we go there, it's like, oh, oh, so the Rocky Mountains are like way across the prairies over there. You can see them where Curtis living in Fernie, he's like right in them. So when the sun goes down tonight, it's like he's in the mountains It hopefully cools off and I can, grizzly I can bears walking right past there. his house. Right there. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's kind of interesting how when you're like close to the mountains or you're in the mountains, so. It's very different. However, I know of no major university in North America that is in the mountains, unfortunately. If you know of one, mm. I will apply to that university. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But, but you know, the thing is, is like, I, I agree with you. I mean, I love, I love Southern Alberta because uh, I, I love the foothills on the, on the Alberta side of the Rockies, just, just the, the parkland habitat and the grasslands and then the Rockies. Like it's just, that's so beautiful. I just, I love that. Where on the British Columbia side, it's just the Rockies and it's just like slam. And then it's like, you know, forced. So I do love, I do love the, that side. So yeah, it is. Really no, it's a good, there. a beautiful place you're in. Well, BC is, um, it's close to my heart too, okay? Uh, I go there all the time, um, although there were restrictions recently, but uh, as soon as the opportunity presents, I'm in BC, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. Like we're only four and a half hours apart here, three hours for Curtis or so, so, but we're still doing this virtually because of the pandemic stuff. So maybe one day we'll get over to Calgary and sit in your office and do another podcast, but. <laughs> That'll be cool. Um, welcome, everybody. It's uh, Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. <clears throat> this episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is sponsored by the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House in Cranbrook, BC. COVID restrictions are almost lifted, which is sweet, uh, which means that you have no excuse to go down and enjoy some lunch or a nice afternoon or some dinner on the patio which is a really good option for this extreme heat we are in right now. Like I said, it's 43 degrees in my office that I'm sitting here, and it's cooler outside. So outside is the place to be. As soon as I'm done here, I'm going to be grabbing some more iced tea or a beer and going and sitting on the, uh, on the deck. So the hideout, they have four Red Seal chefs creating food from scratch using local farm ingredients wherever possible. Knowing where your food comes from is important to us, and we know it's important to all of you listeners as well. And your meal is just that much better when you know it comes from ingredients that are as local and as fresh as possible. 
take the family out for dinner, grab a few buddies, head out for a beer, whatever the case may be, head down and see the folks at the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House in Cranbrook. And once again, another shout out to iHunter for being an episode supporter. They still have their sweet deal on for you. They have apps for nine provinces and territories. BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. We say this all the time. We feel it's a tool that every hunter should be using. It's fantastic. You guys have heard of us talk of them a lot. I would just go see for yourself if you haven't already. So, the folks at iHunter are still offering the 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. Head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THC podcast when you subscribe to the public land subscription and you get yeah, 20% off your first year. All that information can be found in the show notes. So, check down there after the podcast is done and make sure you. Give the public land feature a try. It is fantastic. We love it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No thanks, where that thanks for, land thanks is. for those guys for supporting us. Totally. And the other cool thing, I went uh, out this past weekend to a new area, and I love the satellite imagery on my phone um, to, you know, kind of see where new roads and stuff are and areas and streams and all that kind of stuff, and you just download and cache the satellite imagery where you are. And then so when I'm out there and there's no cell coverage, I still can see where I am on the land base on my phone and see the satellite imagery. So that's all available to you on the iHunter app. Thanks, man. Cool. Um, so we are joined um, today by Dr. Marco Musiani. How you doing? Very well. It's very hot here too. But yeah, very well. It is. We're all we're all got the got the shiny faces and foreheads going on here. So, um, cool. No. So, Marco, you are a professor at the Department of Biological Sciences uh, at the University of Calgary, and you also have a joint appointment in veterinary medicine. So That's we can. We can interchange questions about biological sciences and like our pets, like why does my dog do this? And, you know, you could probably give advice and because in the, you, you probably study grizzly bears in the morning and then in the afternoon you go over to the veterinary um, school and consult on people's cats and spay and neuter and that sort of stuff. Is that, is that the veterinary medicine appointment <laughs> well in uh, Calgary we have a department of uh, ecosystem and public health in the faculty of veterinary medicine mm. and so there's a focus on uh, ecological uh, problems too this is why I'm joint appointed there yeah yeah cool yeah no veterinary medicine applies as most listeners know to the whole field of wildlife conservation and wildlife management as well and usually the wildlife vets do not care about spaying and neutering your cat <laughs> unless but it again you it were killing wild animals no you were bringing up the issue of dogs and i really love dogs okay but um, what i wanted to say is that uh, once in the past people consider me a significant uh, 
wolf expert. Well, that has taught me a lot about dogs. So yes, if you need advice on dogs, please feel free to ask me. I have some ideas and generally speaking, the dog experts and the wolf experts, they um, align a lot, yeah. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, a little, uh, little community of canine experts. So you, you study in a, a, do research and teach in a number of uh, different areas. Um, the lab uh, that you have at the university, you have some different focus areas, so on um, humans and predator relationship type, type research, um, conservation genetics, so genetics and DNA stuff related to the field of conservation, uh, wildlife responses to human uh, land use, and uh, climate change and diseases, wildlife diseases. Those does that pretty much cover your your main areas of interest and in research? Absolutely. Actually, I feel flattered. Uh, to make a long story short, I teach and do research on ecological matters, and I also have the privilege of uh, teaching every second year the conservation biology course of the University of Calgary. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So was this the second year or is this the off year? Let me think. Okay. I'm getting spaced out here. This one is the actual year in which I was teaching. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm spaced out because of I... this pandemic. To tell you the truth, it was uh, taught remotely. And uh, again, things pile up in our brain during oh. this pandemic and uh, oh, we, we lose sense of time. Yes, I was teaching. We, we this. started this in 2020, I completely, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is 2021. Uh, so we are just coming out of the pandemic and now we all have to stay inside because it's 40 degrees inside our house. So um, yeah, we really look uh, look forward to, to kind of digging into uh, the topic of uh, predators and predation and the management of, of predators and kind of just dig into the uh, science and uh, that sort of thing. Our previous episode uh, was also on on predator predator science with Dr. Um, Sophie Gobert from the University of Idaho. Um, she's um, done research in predator management kind of uh, cool on socioeconomic side of things like uh, she had a, a study that was looking at the actual economic benefits of the reintroduction of predators I think in some eastern states and how they're actually reducing deer populations which is reducing motor vehicle accidents and you know th those sorts of things a very different way of coming at um, the whole topic of predator ecology and predator management and uh, we're really happy to have you on to kind of carry on learning about, you know, predator science and stuff because uh, it, it's definitely a topic that's, uh, you know, interest to hunters and to conservationists. And so the first thing I want to throw out there, you know, and get your thoughts on this is, is do you think that the whole topic of predators and large carnivores on the landscape and predator management and reintroduction of large carnivores on the landscape, all of those, those that, you know, that genre. Is it still polarizing? Do, do you still see that? Is it still a source of 
like conflict in communities or circles that you're involved in or do you see people starting to see eye to eye on this topic or is it still a source of fights at the family dinner table <laughs> okay definitely there is a trend towards uh, being more understanding of uh, each other points of view and uh, seeing uh, eye to eye definitely oh, that's interesting and uh, the reason why I say that is because of personal experience, but also speaking with uh, uh, colleagues. My experience is almost inevitably that uh, if you provide some information, uh, even if that information is anecdotal, or at best, if you provide some uh, science, uh, uh, you know, people, are, people want to listen. Of course, if you then uh, immediately uh, get into what are your opinions about the matter, then the conversation gets polarized. But we can speak about facts, and everybody's very curious. Uh, I have many um, uh, instances to report here, but uh, to make a long story short, I was invited for uh, coffee and drinks by a number of uh, ranchers and hunters who uh, in the initially claimed that they didn't like uh, uh, wolves or bears or cougars, but uh, but then they wanted me to come to their house and we spent two, three hours speaking just about that. And therefore, I realized how interesting the conversation can be and how people actually enjoy talking about these matters. And again, the trend is positive. Well, that's that's really good to hear. Um, you know, that's that's very, very positive. You know, I guess maybe the polarizing debates that, you know, we still hear, uh, you know, out there when the topic of, you know, predators on the landscape kind of come up, maybe, I don't know if you would agree with this, like, does some of that maybe get blown out of proportion a little bit more by the media? Um, they tend to kind of like to, you know, sensationalize things either, you know, sort of like, you know, well, I mean, I saw this recently, this, this winter in Alberta when they produced the results about, um, the grizzly bear recovery, seeing numbers coming back in a few of the grizzly bear management units and kind of the topic came up about, you know, uh, a hunt again on the grizzly bears and it was just seems like everything went off the rails and it was like neighbor against neighbor, uh, almost sort of, but, you know, maybe that's more the way the media portrays it because you're saying you're actually sitting down with people like they were in this conversation about the grizzly bear recovery which was the the rancher community and and having some good conversations so that's well, cool the media always reports the two sides so i don't blame the media uh, what i've noticed uh, and what i've learned is that many years ago we produced a paper that was then published on a journal called ecological economics so the reviewers that we got were not just ecologists, but also people who dealt with economics. And one of the reviewers explained to us, one of the reviewers was educating us, others, that really these predator issues are often surrogate issues. So it is not that hunters or, or ranchers, they do not like wolves but they do not like they don't really like people who come for example from urban areas mm. and they want to use walls to make a case 
uh, about uh, how the land should be managed. So again, these predators are always the scapegoat or the surrogate issues. In reality, uh, they are, uh, it's, it's not that true that uh, some people hate them, some people love them. It's not that true. Uh, there are many uh, uh, balanced uh, uh, attitudes to, towards predators. They get neglected simply because sometimes the people who want to have a say on the land, they have different views on how the land should be managed. Right, right. Now that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've heard that very concept like come out in, in a lot of different areas and conversations with people is that the immediate topic uh, or conflict or, or the polarizing opinions where the starting point is, isn't actually what is is really at the heart of the matter. Um, we have a friend who uh, here in, uh, in BC lives in Cranbrook, uh, was was a coworker of mine, and and he he deals with um, things in the environment, um, environmental management to do with like complaints of like pollution and dumping and those sorts of things, and so he gets a lot of cases which are when the public reports some sort of pollution event and it's usually if it's coming from the public it's about their neighbor and so he'll go out and investigate going oh the neighbor's dumping you know this sewage on my land or his horses or cows it's running off he starts digging in and pretty soon it's like okay it has nothing to do with that it's like this other problem these two landowners argue about where the property line is or what time of the morning so-and-so starts his tractor or whatever. And um, so kind of what you were saying r reminded me of Ross's sort of dilemma at work is, is uh, yeah, people have, have trouble getting to the heart of those issues and predators and, and stuff. Like you said, those are good words, surrogate, you know, for, for underlying problems. And, uh, and um, the, there are, ideas that are absolutely related. One of the ideas is that of a scapegoat, and the other idea is case for war, right? When you want to a war, uh, you have to have a case for war. And the actual words, I think they come from um, uh, the ancient uh, Romans, you know? So they needed to have a case for war, a casus belli, right? Case for war. And uh, of course, they wanted to wage war about bigger issues, but the case might be something minuscular. And uh, uh, oftentimes, uh, the predator uh, issues are a case for war uh, around much bigger matters. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Oh man, it's uh, you go into this field of wildlife conservation and you end up uh, dealing with human psychology is is the <laughs> the, the biggest part of it. Human behavior. Um, so just kind of starting off at a, at a high level, just kind of maybe, you know, what your thoughts are, kind of where are we scientific community kind of at in the whole field of predator and large carnivore research? Like, what's the state of the science? Like, um, what are your thoughts on it? More of it, less of it, all focused on wolves and not other things what's the big picture so the big picture of uh, things is that uh, to do science over the effects that predators have on uh, prey and uh, potentially 
what people can do by removing predators to help prey is not easy. Uh, I want to give you an example, and the example is uh, predation of livestock. All the science that I know of agrees that we should have data, but to gather data over such a relatively rare events is difficult. Um, and uh, so if you apply the principle of rigor, you will see that uh, it's difficult to detect significant effects, for example, of predator removal in helping uh, decrease the occurrence of uh, wolf or bear or cougar attacks on uh, on, uh, on livestock. So these are relatively rare events from a statistical point of view. Um, I'm not I'm not underestimating what this event can do to the local livestock producer, though. So your the attack of wolves or bears or cougars or coyotes might be relatively rare, okay? It might happen just once every year, but then your losses at a, a ranch scale might be significant. To do science right. is a difficult business, yeah. So was that a was that a barrier to science in the past? Predator science was 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 the research being done, but it wasn't like overly robust because of the rare events or were people like not doing as much of it because it was just a difficult field to do science in? I think I could respond in two ways. So the, the first way is that if you really try to collect all the studies done uh, on the planet on uh, predators effect on prey and the effects of predator removal um, on, on prey, um, you will find there is lots of uncertainty. Uh, what is this uncertainty due to? Well, many of these predator removal attempts, they have not been done in a systematic uh, way. Uh, oftentimes, we remove some predators and, uh, from certain area and for a shortened uh, uh, period of time, and uh, we don't see uh, a significant effect. Um, in the end, there is lots of uncertainty. Um, there are not uh, significant effects. There is lots of variation uh, in, in, uh, in these effects. And uh, again, there are some studies uh, that claim uh, they have detected uh, a positive effect, say, on prey due to predator removal. But then uh, when you really try to see what this rigorous science, you find that uh, uh, the majority of very rigorous studies found lots of uncertainty. So this is my first uh, uh, way of uh, responding to you. The second way, if you want, we can go in, into the next uh, uh, round of questions and so on. I, I have some ideas. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, whatever you want. If you want to go into the second part of that one, what your thoughts are. The second part go of ahead. yeah, second second part of that one is uh, is a concept. So the concept is that uh, let's speak, uh, for example, about wolves. Uh, it's a good example. Okay, so of course people can extirpate wolves. Uh, 
people have exhibited wolves uh, 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 throughout the uh, uh, lower US um, uh, almost 100 years ago, successfully. So of course you can uh, extirpate wolves, and uh, then there will be um, an effect, meaning that the uh, attacks on livestock <laughs> will go to zero. Don't we agree? They will go to zero. Uh, but practically, uh, nowadays, uh, when people uh, regulate or control wolves, uh, they more realistically get into wolf control uh, in a non-systematic way. And so they really have, people really, really have an effect on wolf populations. And uh, therefore, there will be no diminishing of attacks on livestock. It gets political. Uh, uh, so our societies respond to public outcry uh, in Canada, or it is planned as it is in the US nowadays. So some wolves are removed, but uh, the effects on the wolf population is not significant. And of course, there is no significant effects on uh, wolf attacks on livestock or uh, wolf effects on uh, prey uh, dynamics. Right, right, yeah. No, I've, I've um, read some papers. I, I don't know if this is kind of maybe you, you can tell us sort of the current state of understanding in the science that if in wolves, if the removal from the population is like 30% or less, you know, 30 to 35%, I think this was some of Mark Boyce's work years ago in Alberta. It's kind of like sort of saying that doesn't even really like have a ripple effect in a, in a wolf population. They can just quickly rebound from that. If you're talking about like, wolf control being at a level where you may see some, you know, some, some increases in prey or, or, or decreases in depredation, like we're talking about like 80 to 90% suppression of the population on an annual basis. It, are those numbers still kind of like realistic based on, on the scientific understanding? Yes. Yes, actually, it's a good summary, uh, Mark. It's a good summary. Uh, all the numbers that you mentioned. I want to also add uh, a concept that uh, when uh, people uh, remove uh, predators, uh, then uh, on the same uh, landscape, there will be per unit predator uh, more resources, more uh, prey to eat. And uh, the uh, predators, uh, in particular the canids, okay, they will respond well, they will produce more pups. And uh, from everything I've uh, studied firsthand, uh, the, uh, for example, the prediction of livestock that we call in uh, the ecological literature, we call depredation, depredation, okay? Depredation uh, will be highest in uh, uh, July and August, which is exactly the period where the energy demand of the pups are at its highest because the pups need more protein uh, to grow. So again, uh, the current levels of uh, uh, predator removal might even uh, uh, backfire 
mean that there will be even a rebounding of uh, the predator population that will be younger and more in need of proteins and therefore have a higher effects on uh, livestock or uh, wild prey. Oh, interesting. Huh. Of course, I've, when you reach heard 89%, as you mentioned, then, yeah. then um, yeah, those are almost kind of like un unheard of numbers, you know, to be able to sustain, you know, something like that. Def definitely like hunters and trappers and stuff wouldn't be able to operate at that level. That's kind of like the government sanctioned, you know, predator control programs like at, at that level, at those level. But I mean, I've heard or read, you know, similar things about what you were saying. Um, like with coyotes as well, is that, you know, their populations can kind of respond counterintuitively to people, you know, shooting or trapping coyotes where they, they can sort of, it's, it's like the population feels this removal and that there's vacant spaces and additional resources. So they, it's like the population takes advantage of it and kind of makes like, like more, more of them. And um, that's sort of kind of what, what you were saying with, Wolves, wolves can can respond that way as well and produce more pups if the you know there's more to go around. Absolutely, and then there is cougars, and with cougars clearly we don't know enough about uh, how they respond to removal. Uh, with bears, uh, we know a lot, and um, due to uh, good collaboration between. Uh, all levels of uh, decision making, uh, local to provincial to national, uh, we seem to not let people remove uh, uh, too many bears, and therefore there will be no effect on uh, either uh, predation of livestock or um, effects on uh, wild prey at current levels of uh, removal. Yeah. And no, when I speak about good places... collaboration is that, uh, again, uh, bear conservation seems to be a societal value. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially, especially, well, in Alberta and British Columbia, where, uh, you know, like species like the grizzly bear not, not even being hunted anymore in both, both the provinces based on, you know, societal values. Alberta was, was driven more by conservation concerns because of the, the low numbers. But, yeah, no, I hear, I hear what what you're saying there for sure so i mean studying predator and, uh, and the hunters too frankly frankly mm. yeah no absolutely the, fr so, the, so the hunters studying... too uh, they seem to collaborate with uh, uh, all level of decision making yeah yeah they're definitely definitely a passionate group there as well so now in places like alberta um doing research on predator ecology, whether it's, you know, depredation or, or, you know, natural ecological processes with predators must be compounded by the fact that like, there's all the major carnivores there, wolves, grizzly bears, black bears, cougars, even the mesocarnivores, the lynx, the bobcats, the coyotes, like it's just wolverines, everything's there. So, so is that is that more of a challenge um, to looking at the relationships or at predator ecology because there's so many of them, like trying to to sort out who's doing what and who's responding to what levels of removal? 
I, th I think so. I don't have uh, evidence firsthand, but uh, by looking at the data and speaking with colleagues, uh, I think that, for example, when uh, people decide to remove wolves to help uh, threaten caribou, then uh, predation by cougars on uh, caribou might augment, for example. So there are many confounding factors there. These are never rigorous uh, experiments, and uh, this is uh, basically linking to what I was saying before. So to really gain good science with rigorous experiments about this big and important matter is a challenge. There are many confounding factors. So as a researcher, were you kind of, you know, or, or you know, like the whole scientific community is sort of studying predator ecology, uh, has there been a change to, to incorporating science more actively into management to say, okay, if in a given area, this is what, you know, we understand, you know, predator populations, prey, the dynamics, they're going to manage in a certain way, but they're attaching science to that. Is, is more of that happening? Because I would assume in the past, if you wanted to research predators, you'd be like kind of coming along going, oh, they did this program 10 years ago, and here's the harvest data, and here's the, the aerial flight numbers on mule deer, and you're trying to piece it together. Are you more actively at the management table now, sort of studying as management is being done, or are you still scrambling from behind? This is a, a good question, whether science is more listened to recently about these matters of predator removal and effects on, on prey. And uh, I would say that there is not a clear pattern. No. Nothing like what happened during the pandemic has happened. So during the pandemic of COVID, we as a society really listened to some scientists and there were consistent modeling efforts to understand, for example, what a certain management measure could be doing to infections and even lethality of this disease. And there was a feedback between uh, science and society and vice versa. I have not seen anything like this with regard to uh, predator removal. And uh, I would say that the real reason is that uh, we as a society respond uh, to these matters when they become uh, an important emergency. So respond to uh, some outcries every now and then, and there is no uh, coordinated uh, system of governance with science and society uh, having feedbacks between the two. No. Right. Yeah, it seems like at least one of the areas that um, I'm aware of that seems to be, you know, a little bit more of that science going on is in the caribou recovery areas in British Columbia and Alberta. There seems to be uh, a lot more people tied to the management and the recovery going on, looking at, at the effects of of predators on, on caribou recovery. But yeah, I would sort of feel once you get outside of endangered species that... Uh, 
doesn't seem like there's a lot of science coupled with with the management questions especially when you see both sides of the spectrum where people are you know crying out uh and and upset you know like with hunting and trapping of wolves and calling for more science uh, and then on the other side of the fence you get hunters are saying like there's too many wolves are having too much of an impact um, you need to do something about it but I, I don't really see too much science getting inserted in on in, uh, in there to 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 bring some facts to the table it's right back where we started just like a whole bunch of opinions and and that sort of thing Absolutely, and uh, so the caribou example uh, is interesting. Uh, it is um, a system in which we know a lot. So we know that the major predator of car caribou is wolves, and um, we know uh, also some uh, other mechanisms. So uh, we know that uh, caribou is not the staple uh, prey of wolves, and wolves increase due to other uh, prey present in the environment. And um, even then, our management uh, measures seem to be temporary, short-lived, uh, because nobody wants to extirpate wolves. There are some reductions that are very uh, regional, and uh, wolves will uh, come back. So um, I fail to see uh, uh, a plan for the very long term. Um, yeah. Hmm. So it is a lot more, like you said, kind of crisis driven when it comes to predator management. And then, and then it always seems like it's almost, almost political, um, you know, is where the conversations in society seem to be. Right. So it's not, not the, not always the best decisions are made when, when topics, wildlife management topics become political decisions. So do you, yeah. Do you see, um, like over your career, do you see uh, a shift in sort of the philosophy or the types of questions or the things that people are researching in the field of predator ecology, large carnivores? Um, is it more, more diverse? Is it um, very focused in, you know, to specific research questions? What, what are your thoughts? I don't know exactly if I see a shift. Um, I see I see that there are some emerging patterns uh, more in what we we find than how we study these matters. If you want, I, I could elaborate on these emerging patterns. No, yeah, absolutely. So with regard to Predator removal, where there is an issue with uh, attacks on uh, domestic ungulates. I see that uh, in uh, Western societies, there are often compensation programs. So in theory, in theory, um, the, any uh, damage would be compensated at market value. So from a narrow-minded economic perspective, we wouldn't have an issue. But yes, there is an issue, and uh, uh, the issue is uh, has many dimensions, and one is uh, stress, uh, the other uh, one is animal welfare, uh, the other uh, issues that there might be effects uh, on livestock that are not just uh, 
the little effects, okay? So the lifestyle might be stressed. So mm. our societies uh, in the Western world, they will try to address the matter. And um, more or less the patterns that are emerging, in my opinion, is that uh, there could be, uh, in some cases, a, a strong system, uh, like uh, still in the US, in the United States. So in the United States, uh, uh, there are clearly two seasons of uh, wolf attacks on livestock, uh, a season that is characterized by high wolf attacks and a season by uh, lower wolf attacks. And uh, what happens is that the government has a system and, and resources to then, uh, um, when certain um, thresholds are exceeded during a specific season uh, of wolf attacks, uh, some wolves will be removed. And um, uh, so you see a seasonality in uh, wolf attacks on livestock and a seasonality in wolf removal. And the next year, the same will happen again. So it's seasonal and reoccurring. Uh, there is never an end. And um, yes, and in other places where there's not, uh, uh, not so much attention to the problem, nor uh, as much resources, like Canada, um, the uh, prediction on livestock will still occur seasonally. So you see that clearly, okay, in all the data they have seen. But um, the uh, removal of predators happens uh, uh, sporadically in an unplanned matter, um, uh, and immediately when there is a public outcry. And so the uh, predator remover campaigns are not seasonal, they are less planned. And um, they might they might address uh, the issue in a very limited region for a very short time, but then after one year, the same season, the problem will present again, okay? Uh, so this is speaking about the Western world. Then I also uh, worked uh, on this matter of uh, predators, uh, um, uh, attacks on livestock in um, areas that are not clearly um, uh, Western countries. For example, I worked with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United uh, Nations uh, in, er in areas that were uh, poor areas, uh, in which the economy was poor. And, um, and over there, um, there, is, there is not even uh, public resources for uh, compensating the damage done by predators, okay? And uh, and over there, what happens is slightly different. If you want, I can elaborate on what happens over there. Sure, yeah, no, totally. I think this is, this is cool. So what happens over there is that um, some municipalities, we're speaking villages, okay? Some municipalities, they still raise some funds to compensate even partially because the system is like an insurance uh, uh, policy. So the society raises some funds because uh, overall the damage on the livestock industry is not significant, but the damage on the local producer who is hit is significant. So it's natural that society still, like with a kind of a gra grassroots mechanism, raises some funds. So there is some, uh, money for compensation raised locally. And um, 
if there is um, there is not money, what will happen though is that there will be uh, uh, public outcries. Uh, there will be um, there will be instances in which some local producers feel the burden of uh, uh, predator attacks, and at that point uh, they will call some uh, trappers or hunters, and. Uh, these uh, trappers or hunters, without uh, 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 many resources, they will try to um, to kill some predators, and uh, and typically they will kill some. And when they will kill some predators, I've seen these predators uh, exhibited uh, 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 on top of a, of a of a car in a village, and people were offering money to the hunter. Uh, did they think that the hunter or the trapper uh, took care of the problem? No, but it was like cathartic, so it made society feel better. We got rid of the that particular predator, and and then society is ready to go back to business. When trust me, there was no effects on the uh, population of predators or on the attack of livestock. Still, our society have responded this way for centuries. And the story of Little Red Riding Hood is uh, <laughs> aligned uh, with that too. Yeah. So again, yeah. removal of the uh, big, uh, bad black wolf uh, uh, makes society feel that we can uh, progress. Whereas the, there is no effects on density of, of wolves, for example, nor on attacks of wolves on livestock in that area. Hmm. Now, those are the types of things, like, as a researcher, um, do you experience a lot of backlash, you know, from people or from the communities when, when they feel like the hunter got, you know, the wolf that was taking some sheep, and you're saying, well, based on, you know, the research we're doing, long run, it's really not going to make a difference to that producer, he's going to lose six every year it's this isn't helping um do 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 emotions or opinions kind of uh override or or uh you know do you get attacked as a scientist still because of that those types of things that research is finding well my answer will be very short this time i will not be <laughs> uh you know bombarding you with words. I, I would say that uh, if a scientist uh, correctly represents the, data, represents the data, then any public is willing to listen. When scientists, uh, on the other hand, are obscured a bit by their conservation uh, objectives, then they're not listened to. But, uh, you know, scientists should tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah, th I think that's definitely what people people want the truth, um, then there are the people that sort of like, well, if the truth doesn't align to <laughs> what they believe, then then you're not speaking the truth because it's not what I believe. So that, that seems to be a common theme when it comes to predators and predator management. And um, again, I was not saying, okay, that uh, my colleagues, uh, uh, they are obscured by their objective of being conservationist. I'm just saying that we all as uh, uh, citizens, uh, we have yeah. our values, right? Uh, 
Um, uh, however, when scientists uh, speak, they can make sure to, uh, to, to make a distinction between the two. So they might say, look, uh, this is what I say, okay, look, I have a vested interest in which in the fact that you don't extirpate predators or I lose my job, okay? I have a vested interest in that. <laughs> uh, 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 but again, if I'm invited to a round table to speak about predator management, uh, please ask me and I will respond in uh, um, uh, as best as I can, yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things... Uh, in, in the emails we had uh, setting up this uh, setting up the podcast, one of the um, the um, notes that I had here that you that you highlighted this concept of problem predators and 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 how we label um, certain species, certain packs, cer certain individuals of large carnivores as being uh, problems and you were sort of questioning is is that something that actually exists so maybe can you expand a little bit about that that notion of problem predators and it yeah. maybe kind of relates to the the you know the little red riding hood you know sort of stuff you're talking about is people are like well once a you know a wolf gets used to like killing cows or sheep then it's like that's all it does and you know th these sorts of things and then that that one becomes a problem because it's like a it's a cow killer um so, so you're it almost seems like you're kind of questioning that that maybe that's not something that's real yes i've uh, learned to question the notion so people often speak about problem bears for example so these are bears that uh, have learned to approach people or they have shown an uh, aggressive uh, uh, behavior uh, towards people that you consider not natural. And, um, and so the next step is that you, uh, as a society, you uh, maintain that in a certain area there is a problem bear, a bear that has learned to misbehave, and we should do something, either uh, uh, aversive conditioning or removal, okay? Uh, I learned to question the notion, and uh, many times I'm being I'm being correct. Uh, for example, in the bear uh, world, so um, I would say that we humans uh, we are among the most um, elaborate uh, uh, culturally uh, animals uh, 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 on the planet, and so we tend to uh, um, attribute to the animals the same type of psychology that we have, which which are very complex. And yes, we humans, and as well as other uh, primates, for example, we can learn, uh, but uh, many predators, uh, simply they will attack livestock if the occasion presents, or they will even attack people if the occasion presents. So uh, I've learned to focus more on the contextual factors of these attacks than on the uh, learning, yes. Hmm. And again, so, I, again, I've um, I've been interviewed a number of times. For example, about bear attacks, and uh, I've spoken with um, uh, uh, problem uh, uh, predator specialists in various countries, and I always question a bit. And uh, in the majority of cases, I was right. Okay, uh, meaning that, uh, uh, for example, 
it was not the same bear that attacked um, uh, two people uh, a few kilometers away, but there were really two bears that attacked people because their circumstances were such that promoted uh, bear attacks. For example, this is just an example. Yeah. 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 Now, in in your experience, when it comes to just sort of the issue of livestock depredation, um, are and and the context around that, is it certain individuals? Is it certain livestock management practices? Are there um, like individuals, say, like in a wolf pack that um, decide that that's what they want to specialize in or become, you know, their job, uh, you know, is, 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 uh, hunting cows as opposed to hunting elk or something like that. Is it, is it that, um, kind of sophisticated, you know, when it comes to livestock? Okay. I will respond with my own experience with my own data. I want to let the information and the data speak, uh, by itself. So, uh, once, years ago, in southwest Alberta, with an incredible PhD student called Tyler Muley, uh, we did a study and we found, and I was presented this information at conferences, okay, and there were many people who were conservationists, and we found that uh, wolf attacks on livestock were more uh, likely in flatter areas and I noticed that oh, the whole conference were uh, nodding, like, oh, it makes sense because, you know, uh, livestock stays in flatter areas. They don't, for example, cows, they don't go in rugged terrain or steep areas. Fine. And they happened closer to forested areas. Well, and I also see everybody nodding. Oh, yes, it makes sense because wolves don't venture in open areas uh, because they have fear of people. So they would attack uh, livestock in flatter uh, areas. Uh, uh, that were close to thickets of forests. It totally makes sense. And I said, and in areas with higher density of elk. And I saw the whole, I lost the whole audience. They were all conservation people, you know. I lost them and they could not <laughs> understand why uh, wolves would attack likes or more readily where there was more wild prey. They could not understand. But uh, to me, the answer is in the direction that you were talking about before, Mark, that any uh, wolf, uh, if uh, the wolf will encounter livestock um, uh, close to uh, a forested area in flat terrain, will attack livestock. There are simply more wolves in areas that have more elk and wild prey. So there are more wolves and any wolves can occasionally engage in uh, predation of livestock. So again, my approach was more statistical and less psychological or animal behavior type of uh, uh, approach. Uh, in that particular case, I think I was right, but I have been wrong in other cases too, okay? Hmm. So, so again, I'm... any predator can uh, uh, attack uh, um, uh, uh, livestock and uh, uh, and it simply depends upon density and encounter uh, rate so how many uh, prey they encounter per unit time yeah oh interesting 
So, so when it comes to livestock, it's not necessarily like, uh, you know, like a predator, like a wolf is switching to livestock because there's not enough elk. It's, it's, they're actually, the wolf population is doing well because there's abundant elk and would they prefer a cow over an elk because even though they're bigger maybe they're actually easier to bring down like you would you know obviously most people would know that a wolf kind of takes its life into its hands when it decides to bite an elk or a or a moose or something it maybe is it a little bit easier to bring a cow down so well this is what common sense would uh, 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 would say uh, I'm, I'm actually also puzzled because uh, to me, uh, a big elk is a formidable opponent. <laughs> um, but um, I'm not sure there is a clear answer to, to what you just asked. So uh, that wolves would pick uh, uh, cows or livestock or yearlings because they are, they are naive and they would select them over uh, wild prey. Uh, I don't know exactly why there is not a clear uh, pattern. Uh, there could be many explanations. Uh, for yeah. example, there could be the explanation that, again, maybe some, uh, uh, some packs uh, in, uh, in, in areas with uh, very high livestock density might switch to, um, uh, to livestock. But then those packs will be removed, in a, again, in a very planned way in the United States, in a unplanned way in Canada, uh, but still they will be removed. And, uh, and in other countries uh, uh, with other uh, unplanned, uh, by other unplanned means, yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, there's so many factors, like, you know, just um, livestock practices, you know, on, on, on the, the ranch. And I, ha I had this sort of experience uh, working in the outdoors near a ranch um the wolves would like basically pace the perimeter of the ranch you know kind of looking on the inside of the fence looking for their opportunity um it was on the winter range there was plenty of elk and deer but they were always like right right on the fence line and this rancher was always you know sort of um complaining to the wildlife managers that these you know he's losing some livestock they are there constantly night and day you know just waiting for an opportunity so there was sort of an investigation done at the ranch and sort of long story short they the wildlife manager said well what do you do when the cow dies like of natural reasons and they're like well we pick it up with the tractor and then we go dump it on the other side of the fence <laughs> so so these wolves were were cruising the fence line because they knew they could you know get a dead cow once in a while but then when there wasn't a carcass there they were still like eyeing up the the ones that weren't carcasses yet and once in a while they had to go in and, and take them so it was that was more of a uh you know a situation where they were kind of bringing it upon themselves by, by not, you know, getting rid of the, the carcasses. So I, I can appreciate what you're saying, how there's so many factors in context, you know, even though there's a lot of natural, natural prey species around. So. Yeah. Do I'm, you... I'm in agreement with you. I cannot add much. <laughs> you, you seem to know more did, about did, this particular case. <laughs> did that one. Yeah. That one was, was pretty interesting. So, um, so 
we're seeing predator populations like across North America and especially in, you know, in, in Canada as well. Um, people say they're increasing and, you know, I, I could, I can definitely, you know, agree with that given the history, you know, that we were actively poisoning, you know, predators up until in British Columbia, it was like up and right into the early, late sixties, early seventies. Um, before, you know, it was stopped that, you know, we're maybe not seeing an unnatural increase in predator populations, but more of a rebounding back to their former, former populations. What's your experience in Alberta with, you know, predator populations and stuff? Are, are they rebounding? Do you see that as recovering or, or is there a lot of science actually being done to kind of look at their abundance and densities or is it still, that, no, still people a, just speculating yeah that's a good uh, topic to speak about um, i think that uh, the bear case is the most uh, interesting to talk about so we don't know much about cougars how many cougars there are in alberta we don't know much about wolves how many wolves there are we know very little about coyotes um, so speaking about predators, I speak about bears. Why not? Um, to to tell you the truth, in a nutshell, I think that uh, there was there were changes in techniques of uh, um, sensing uh, uh, approaches, right? How you census bears, and uh, there were also changes in personnel. Uh, you know, the data needs to be analyzed by people and people might disagree with each other, uh, but not because they disagree on the philosophy, but simply because the interpretation uh, is kind of a transparent process, but still you arrive at slightly different conclusions. To make a long story short, I do not want to listen to uh, grizzly bears, uh, um, been on a decline until three years ago and now bouncing back. I believe that uh, the situation of predators in Alberta might be fairly stable or we don't know much. Okay. And is for, there... Yeah, for what, for what I know about BC, it is, uh, it is very similar, okay? Then there are, of course, as you know, the um, government-driven uh, wolf control um, activities in some regions and over there of course you see a dramatic decline uh, of, uh, of wolves for example and uh, and from what I've what I know it might be temporary I mean that when the wolf control campaigns will be suspended then they will be uh, rebounding yeah yeah now I see this a lot, you know, when it comes to the topic of, you know, hunting and especially trapping, uh, and even in some conservation contexts where people are, you know, questioning this very thing that there isn't good, robust science around population estimates. And then I've also heard that predators, maybe, you know, excluding, you know, grizzly bears uh, or even black bears, they're harder 
to understand or estimate their populations than even the ungulates are, which people can appreciate how hard those are. You know, you're trying to fly and count them in stratified random blocks and some of them are in the trees and sightability indexes and all this kind of stuff to est estimate, uh, you know, ungulate populations. Is, is something like cougars and wolves and coyotes even more difficult? Okay, so uh, yes, because their predators are typically elusive. Uh, people don't see them as much. It's difficult to count them. Uh, however, there are some uh, other approaches. And for example, now we have motion activated cameras uh, yes. that can be used to, to count uh, even elusive animals like predators. And then we have uh, um, uh, capture, recapture approaches, for example, using DNA that can be extracted from uh, hair follicles of, of predators. And so by, by those means, yes, we can, uh, with certain accuracy, assess uh, bear populations, for example. And I recently, just recently, did a uh, review myself, okay, out of my personal interest of uh, bear densities. Uh, um, it was about any study that uh, used uh, um, uh, DNA uh, at these uh, sites where the actual the hair are captured and the individuals are identified to count bears, uh, 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 black bears, grizzly bears, and brown bears, which is the same species as grizzly bears, okay, so throughout uh, Europe and Asia. And all that I found is the following, is that simply there is more grizzly bears at lower latitudes, so in slightly warmer climates than uh, at uh, higher latitudes, so in much colder climates with a very shorter, very much shorter uh, growing season. Uh, and then what I also found is that there are there is an order of magnitude more black bears uh, uh, than grizzly bears. So this is the actual the actual science, something that I can defend, I can make sense of. Uh, then there are of course local patterns due to uh, um, an area being open to hunting, being close to hunting, uh, and they obscure the truth. Uh, I don't see big change. Overall, I think that uh, 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 these predators' uh, populations are fairly stable. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, if you know, like I said, there's there seems to be a lot of like public conversation right now, especially from the non-hunting community, to like justify um, you know the harvest rates of you know, carnivores are, are predators as to having, you know, good science on, uh, let's just, you know, pick, pick wolves. You know, we need better science on wolf populations to know whether the harvest levels are, you know, um, appropriate, not, or, you know, are sustainable. Now, given the differences between sort of like the slow rates of reproductions, can scientists even like, like, be that accurate to say, yes, we can go out and do, uh, spend a whole year doing, uh, you know, a wolf census in a given area, but next year they could be 25% less or 50% more. Like, will their populations fluctuate, you know, more year to year, uh, um, than, than ungulate populations and, 
And is that part of what would make it difficult? What scientists do is that they try to get a snapshot of uh, predator density. Uh, it is uh, much more difficult to count predators than prey. So let's, let's, let's put all the effort, let's get a snapshot. And then sometimes uh, people, for example, government decides to uh, remove uh, predators and then they don't count predators again, but they see if there is an effect on uh, prey and they attribute that to uh, the removal of predators and or they also assess the real instances which predators uh, attack prey and see if that has you know, diminished. Yes, as you say, there is lots of uncertainty. It's very difficult to count animals it's, and it's easier for prey than for predators. Yeah. Okay. No, it makes, makes definitely is intuitive and makes, makes sense for sure. So now if you, if, if my, as a researcher and, and this was an area that you're interested in and, you know, predator ecology and predator management and, you know, kind of the social part of it and the biological part of predator management, if money was unlimited, somebody said, Marco, here's a research chair position and $10 million a year in, in Alberta. What would what would be your vision for for marrying research uh, and management with predator management, ecology, their value on the landscape, balancing interests like like commercial producers and stuff? What would you what would you what would be your dream to lay out for for a science program? I have no doubt about this response. What I would like to see is that uh, uh, our society should agree on what we want. And then the scientists and others could be consulted with on how do we get there. So uh, the, what happened again with COVID is, uh, is something that we can learn from. So, our society decided that we cannot accept um, people's death to levels that are levels that were achieved only during wars. And so how do we get there? Uh, and science was used to address uh, that question, how? Um, I wonder if this will ever, hap ever happen with uh, predator and prey dynamics. I doubt it, okay, but uh, <laughs> this is what I would hope for, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good, uh, you know, a good, a good vision. Um, people understanding and, and agreeing upon, you know, the, the, the future, what they want these things to look like. And, and, and I think what you said was that, you know, was, was key, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, what levels, you know, can, can people, you know, accept. So, you know, as society, when it comes to something like livestock losses, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. There's an economic, there's a social aspect to it. Um, so, you know, what, what does society want? Some people are going to say, so what, don't touch a wolf. They can take cows, don't do anything to the wolves. And then on the other side, they're going to be like, poison them all, um, you know, and save every cow kind of thing. But as we all know, there's everybody and even yeah. ranchers and conservationists are going to, they're going to reasonably land in the middle, middle ground. And, and, um, you know what, I, science, science can help. 
I agree with you. I really agree with you. This is why I interrupted you. I really agree with you. So I, I was engaged just um, by chance in these conversations, and and um, we never arrived at an agreement. But an agreement was possible. So I do remember uh, there was a round table, and uh, and a rancher was asked uh, to start. How many wolves you want in this area? And she started saying minus fifty. She says, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then uh, there was a pause. Everybody was listening. She said, no, no, I'm kidding. What she meant is she wanted to understand what the others wanted. Um, and um, it was a very interesting uh, round table. Um, uh, of course, it was short lived. But the reason is not because of wolves or wolf tradition lives, okay? Is that around this round table there were people who had opposite views on environmental management more broadly. What should happen on this uh, land? And this is why uh, these uh, attempts uh, to define uh, a science of uh, uh, predator management, they fail because there are other methods that uh, um, that uh, are even more important to people, yeah. And so they don't agree on on predators, for example. Hmm. No, that's interesting. That's uh, it, it. That's almost coming back full circle to one of your very first comments. Whereas you know these conflicts or polarization over predators is often, you know, if I heard this right, kind of like they're surrogates for bigger issues about what do people want on the land as a whole, like everything ecologically economically socially and and the battleground of the disagreements maybe tend to come over over predators so no that's uh that's a that's a neat way to close the circle so i don't know whether that rancher was the same one that that maybe i know maybe she came from the east kootenays here in british columbia and was at your meeting in uh in uh alberta but there i was at a meeting one time uh where the rancher uh was a lady and she spoke out and she goes said something about the only good grizzly bear i've ever seen is one that i saw swipe its paw and take the head off of a wolf <laughs> and <then> she sat <laughs> down <laughs> so um People that are from the Cranwick area probably know Faye. Um, that's her <laughs> character, base a movie on her. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think most most people see it that way. Marco, really appreciate uh, all these thoughts and insights into um, kind of the state of science around predators and predator management. And big takeaway message I got was, you know, maybe in these polarizing debates about predators um, maybe people need to just stop and take a step back and say what is this really about um, and start to maybe see that the commonality is ecosystem integrity land use planning those types of things and get the conversation headed there and not so much um, predator management uh, yay or nay and then i think another big message that i've taken from you is is this theme about we talked about even before the podcast of like what covid is like taught us about the value of science and at what levels do we want to accept things and the bending of the curve and all of these concepts that as you know that's 
but what scientists have been talking about for hundreds of years, right? Now all of a sudden a huge segment of the society is listening and we're basing, basing policy on it and um, those sorts of things and, and hoping that, that that value and the philosophy will rub off into more areas of conservation and especially predator management. So thank you very thank much you. for all those thoughts. And if you got an extra 10 million bucks, uh, Marco's got his plan for predator ecology and research all sorted out, ready to go. <laughs> Thank you for being here. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Um, Curtis, go ahead. Today's episode is once again supported by iHunter. If you're interested in getting their public land subscription, head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THC podcast, the Hunter Conservationer podcast. We went over this in the last episode. It's not uh, THC from cannabis. It's the Hunter Conservationist. So THC podcast <laughs> for 20% off your first year of their public land subscription. The code is available for all the Canadian apps they have available. Go check them out. Again, if you guys haven't checked them out yet, uh, we've talked about them for many episodes you might as well just go check them out if you haven't. It's uh, it's a fantastic tool. We use it all the time. It's yeah, it's it's unrivaled for sure. It's a fantastic tool. Um, it works. I was sitting the other day, again, that back basin off my deck that I was trying to figure out how to get into, just scoping out more ways to see if I can find a shorter route in around some private land and. Uh, and using using the iHunter app. Exactly. A little bit the... of e-scouting here for elk season coming up quicker than we all uh, we all think. Uh, yeah, so that information is down in the show notes. Go check that out as soon as the episode is over. And thanks again to the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House for being today's episode sponsor. Summer is officially here, so why not pop down and order something off their fantastic menu or grab a nice cold pint? The food and the beer at the hideout is fantastic. We love it. It's great. Every time I'm in Cranbrook, I always find myself either grabbing a beer or lunch or dinner. So uh, we love that uh, both iHunter and the hideout are such big supporters of what we're doing. And it helps us bring the content that you guys know and love from us. So if you have a chance, head down to the hideout. Thank them for supporting us because it keeps all that... Uh, good stuff we do in your guys's ears uh right on yeah cranbrook fisher peak brewery hideout restaurant check them out yeah the travel restrictions coming off hopefully soon more people will be coming to cranbrook and listen to this podcast and they'll go be patrons of the hideout yeah, restaurant absolutely so appreciate you if you do that and give us a call when you're in town so Marco, thanks again. Um, really appreciate your uh, your time and your thoughts and stuff on predator management and predator ecology. And that's super interesting. Really appreciate that. And just to close out, you need to tell us the proper pronunciation of your last name uh, in the proper language. Italian, right? You, you told me how to say it in English, Misiani, so... Okay. We need to know the real I will way of saying it. I'll pronounce first and last name. So it is Marco Musiani. Oh yeah, I see that. That's the, the okay, say it again. 
Marco Musiani. Marco. Marco yes, learned, Musiani. There uh, you go. I've learned that I will never speak uh, proper English. I will always have a thick Italian accent and vice versa. People cannot pronounce my name the Italian way, of course. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it better in Italian than in English. So that sounds pretty cool. So thank you very much. And uh, folks, if you're into the reading, the scientific research, uh, and you like digging up papers, um, Google Dr. Marco Musiani and Marco, and um, find some papers by him on predator research and livestock depredation. It's got lots of good stuff out there. So thanks for sharing some of that uh, with our listeners on the show. And uh, hey, everybody, thanks for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.